0: to a couple different passages as we look at this Lord's Day, 16. First of all, let's turn to Matthew, chapter 27, the account of Jesus' death on the cross. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27 We're going to begin our reading at verse 33 and into the end of the chapter. And when they were come to a place called Golgotha, is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation, written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise, also the chief priest, mocking him with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe on him. He trusted in God, let him now deliver him, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabathini, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, they said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent and twain from top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate, and he begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it, in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulchre. Now the next day that followed the day of preparation... The chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Let us also go and look at Romans chapter 3. Verses 24 and 25. Romans 3, 24, 25. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. And one more passage from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. For as much then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So far the reading of God's Word. Let's go to the Catechism then. Lord's Day 16, page 10 in the back of your Psalters. And we have five questions and answers there. Question 40, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Answer, because, with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Question 41. Why was he also buried? Answer. Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Question 42. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Answer Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. Question 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? Answer, that by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with with him. That so the corrupt inclinations of flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Question 44, why is there added, he descended into hell? Answer, that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. May God bless the preaching of his word. Young people in catechism, we study the five steps, or I prefer to use the word degrees, the five degrees of Christ's humiliation. In the last weeks, we have covered his birth, his lifelong suffering, and especially the suffering under Pontius Pilate, and now in Lord's Day 16, we cover the other three degrees of his humiliation, namely his death and burial and descent into hell. The necessity, the truth of the death of Christ Jesus. Death is not, death is not part of nature. It is not part of an evolutionary process where one species changes into another species, the one species dies off, and there is progress to better things. Nor is death annihilation, over and done and no more, like an animal. But rather, death is... The sentence of God against a sinner. It involves separation from God. There is physical death. The separation of our bodies and our souls. Separation from all that we know and all that we love in this world. But death is also a spiritual separation from God. And unless it is remedied, It leads to finally hell, forever forsaken of God, suffering his wrath eternally. And normally, all die. Christ also died. There are, of course, the two exceptions in the Bible of Enoch and Elijah, whom God took to himself. We all die And we cannot avoid it. But what is different about Christ's death is that he voluntarily laid down his life. And he laid down his life for his sheep. Christ was given to us in order to deliver you and me and all of God's saints to deliver us from the sentence of death. And it is only it is only the death of Jesus Christ it is only the death of the son of God that can do this. Did you notice that statement in the catechism? It's a strange statement, the death of the son of God. There are those who are saying, well, we really shouldn't use that phrase because in his divine nature he doesn't die. We have to remember, he has one person while he has two natures. And his one person is the Son of God. And the Son of God, yes, came into this world in our flesh and blood in order to go to the cross and to die. It is the death of the Son of God. I lay down my life, Christ says, that I may take it up again. So that is the confession of the church. The death of the Son of God and nothing less would do for us. The death that Christ willingly bore. He humbled himself unto death and the ravages of hell. And in that way, in that way he delivers you and me. So the truth regarding the death of Christ, notice first of all, the absolute necessity. Second of all, the awful way of the atonement, and then the wonderful fruit of the atonement. the absolute necessary necessity, the awful way and the wonderful fruit. We saw earlier. That Christ's suffering was a penal substitutionary atonement, or what is called a vicarious atonement. That word vicar meaning one who stands in the place of. And we saw that it is a particular atonement. For whom did Christ die? Other words for that is limited atonement or definite atonement. We saw that it is a propitiatory atonement. And that big word, propitiatory, means taking the wrath of God. And that is a word that is taken out of many new translations of the Bible. I hope it's just to try to make it somehow clearer And that it's not a rejection of the teaching that God is very angry, not only with sin, but with the sinner. That there is a righteous wrath of God. And I want to show to you tonight also that the atonement of Jesus Christ was efficacious. And boys and girls or teenagers, that word efficacious means powerful. It does exactly what God intended it to do. Christ laid down his life so that you and I might have life, life eternal. So I begin with the absolute necessity of atonement. The great and the central part of the priestly work of Jesus Christ lies in atonement. That word atonement means making reconciliation by means of a ransom price. There's a payment that has to be made, a payment that has to be made to God's justice. Because of Jesus' sacrificial work on earth, he is now able also as our high priest to intercede for us from heaven and to pour out all of his benefits upon us. The atonement of Jesus is often called the heart, the heart of the gospel. Or what we would call the good news of the gospel. For the gospel does lay out our sins, doesn't it? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that's not the whole story. Thank God. The Gospel goes on to lay out the provisions that God has prepared for those whom He has chosen and given to Jesus Christ to be saved. Death. God's sentence against sin. Yes, the wrath of God, not merely against the sin, but against the sinner. Christ has to deliver God's own saints who are also sinners deliver us from that wrath of God. And the cause for that atonement lies in the good pleasure of God. God's love for his own so that he, the offended one, delivers up the ransom price to redeem and to reconcile his own to himself the cause of the atonement is the good pleasure of God to save sinners by a substitutionary atonement even as Adam was our first father the whole human race God's elect have a new representative the last Adam Jesus Christ Yes, Christ is the object of that pleasure of God. Isaiah 53, verse 10, And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Galatians 1, verse 4, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil world according to the will of our God and our Father. Or again, Colossians 1, verse 19. For it was the good pleasure of the Father that in Him, that is in Christ, should all the fullness dwell and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Notice all things. Not just the souls of the elect, not just the souls and the bodies of the elect, but Romans 8. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth the idea there is it's a wonderful travailing there's a glorious end to that travail if a woman travails in childbirth a child is born a young boy or a young girl and so also this whole earth is now groaning and travailing waiting for the adoption of sons because then this whole creation is going to be redeemed by God now, when we say that was God's good pleasure, I want you to notice this was not an arbitrary will of God. God saying, "any, meeny, miny, mo, this is the way I choose to go. But rather, this pleasure of God is rooted in the very nature of God and in harmony with God's perfections. The substitutionary atonement was founded in the love and in the justice and in the truth of God. It was founded in his love, John 3, verse 16, for God so loved that he gave his only begotten Son. God's justice, Romans 3, verse 26, in order that God might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus, Those two virtues, God's love and God's justice, are united in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, which we have read. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So God's love, God's justice demands it, and God's truth demands it. For it is God who said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. It is God who came to Adam and Eve, warning them, the day thou eatest thereof, thou wilt surely die. So it is the veracity of God that is demanded this penalty of sin should be executed. And if sinners are going to be saved, it must be executed in the very person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to give various views of the atonement. And there's quite a difference of opinion on the necessity of the atonement. First of all, there are those who say the atonement of Jesus was not necessary. Don Scotus, a nominalist in the Middle Ages, said it was not inherently necessary, but it was just determined by the arbitrary will of God. God could have accepted any other substitute And God could have carried out the work of redemption without demanding any satisfaction at all. So this man denied the necessity of the atonement by denying that the justice of God required absolutely that sin be punished. Not absolutely necessary. God could have saved us without demanding any satisfaction think about that a moment young people think of jesus christ there in the garden of gethsemane when his agony and his fear of the cross rings out of him blood as sweat drops and he cries Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. If it be possible. What was God's answer to his son? There is no other way. That is why Jesus Christ was sent down to earth in our flesh and our blood in order to stand in our place and die the death that you and I deserve. Hugo Grotius denied the necessity of the atonement saying, quote, God could relax his law or he could set it aside entirely. Arminians share that view on that point. God did not need to proceed judicially in manifesting his grace. They say he could forgive sin without demanding satisfaction. So for them, the demands of obedience to the law replaced by a demand of faith. It's really up to you to be saved. In the Old Testament they say it was by obeying the law, but we couldn't do it. So now God gives us another way. Just believe and by that work you can save yourself. About 10 years ago in the Herreformeer de Kerk in Nederland, Professor den Heiden wrote, and I quote him, the classic doctrine of atonement does not appear in the New Testament. The idea that Christ's death once for all removed the guilt for human sin is not in the Bible. Wow. It's a Reformed church denying this carnal truth, denying that the atonement was necessary. I'm not done. Some of the most prominent church fathers, such as Athanasius, Augustine, Aquinas, denied the absolute necessity of the atonement, but they ascribed it instead to a hypothetical necessity or a relative necessity. What does that mean? And sad to say, that appears also to be the position taken by the reformers Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. Not absolute necessity, but rather a relative necessity based on the sovereign will of God, that divine decree. <clears throat> Listen to Calvin a minute in his Institutes. If the necessity be inquired into, it is not what is commonly called the simple or absolute, but flowed from the divine decree on which salvation of man depended. What was best for us, our merciful Father determined. So again, the idea there, it is only relatively necessary. Only because God decreed it in eternity, therefore, but he could have decreed something else. But already other early church fathers, such as Irenaeus, taught the absolute necessity of the atonement. And that was stressed in the Middle Ages by Anselm and his Cur Deo Homo, which means why did God become man? And Reformed theology, following Beza, maintained the absolute necessity of the atonement, grounding it upon the justice and the veracity of God. The just. And the veracity of God, that moral perfection of God by which the necessarily maintains his holiness over against the sin and the sinner and inflicts due punishment on transgressors. That's the only way that God could pardon sin and at the same time satisfy his justice. And it is that sentiment of Beza then that comes through in our Lord's Day here. Why was it necessary? You could put the word absolute there, but why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. The canons second head of doctrine, Article 1, also deals with that precious truth. Christ's death was absolutely necessary. God's divine righteousness and holiness cannot overlook sin, cannot say, I pretend not to see it, not to treat it, but must must be uh, visited with punishment. For he will not clear the guilty. And that's why we call it a penal substitutionary atonement. He paid the punishment. The justice of God, the law of God demands it. That law which is absolute and immutable. The very veracity of God demands it. God said the soul that sinneth, it shall die And so all sinners will die in their sins except those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So over against all those different opinions, Paul says, Let God be found true, but every man a liar. Your and my guilt demand the death of Jesus Christ. Absolutely necessary. Perfect satisfaction made. Once and for all. Oh, get into the book of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10. Those Old Testament priests are all the time standing up because there's another animal to be slayed. Many animals each day, every day of the week, every day of the year, and over and over throughout all those years in the Old Testament, 4,000 years. And then the author of Hebrews says, but Christ, having offered up himself on the cross once and for all, dying, he's able to sit down. Because that one sacrifice, that one death, took care of all of our sins. This, death on the cross, Christ willingly bore. We read in the scriptures, he humbled himself even unto death on the cross. And in that way, delivers, delivers his church from that death that they deserve. Notice with me, second of all then, The atoning death of Christ, not only its awful way, but its only possibility. By Jesus Christ descending down into the very pit of hell. He descended into hell, the last question and answer of this Lord's Day. That phrase was not originally in the Apostles' Creed, it wasn't there until the early 6th century. And whatever the historical reason for that phrase being added, as Reformed churches, we understand that phrase, as John Calvin explained it, that on the cross, Christ suffered inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agony. So again, on that phrase in the, our Apostles' Creed, There's different opinions. Probably added in the 16th century by Rome that Christ, after his death, had to descend down to the place of hell to suffer some more. Why is that not true? Because Jesus said, first of all, to the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Number two, his suffering was finished. He says, it is finished, paid in full. And number three, Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus did not go down to hell to suffer some more after he died on the cross. Luther says Jesus went down to hell in order to announce his victory to those down there in hell and to let loose the Old Testament saints. The Westminster Confession says that phrase descent into hell simply means he descended into Sheol, which is another word for he entered into the place of the death. But that would be repetitious, wouldn't it? For we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he died and was buried, and we don't have to say, and he descended into the place of the dead. He was there. In the Heidelberg Catechism, why is this placed fifth? His death, his burial, and his descent into hell, not because it took place in the last place, but it was the worst degree of his suffering for our sins. He suffered the wrath of God, his Father. He suffered that wrath of God his father all of his life long but especially there in those three hours of darkness he was forsaken and he cries out my god my god why hast thou forsaken me and what is its advantage for us that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish and pains and terrors and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Hell is a real place. There are many today that deny it. Evangelicals who have written good books have also jumped on the bandwagon. It's impossible for a God of love to punish and to be wrathful eternally with anyone. And so they teach annihilation. Matthew 25, verse 46 teaches us that at the last judgment... And there shall be those who go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Christ didn't have to enter into the literal place called hell, but he suffered that anguish on the cross, in his sufferings. My God, my God. Can you see his anguish and his fear then, the Garden of Gethsemane? He's going to suffer what only sinners will suffer at the end of the world unrepentant sinners. The wrath, the eternal wrath of God. The significance of that. Hell is the ultimate expression of God's sentence. Of death. Whoever transgressed God's law must be placed there. And it is that death that Jesus bore for his own. What does that mean? Well, that means, beloved, that our physical death has changed its character for us, hasn't it? Oh, yes, we must still physically die. And yes, that death is still the last enemy that we confront in this life. And so, yes, we often ask, just as the Heidelberger does, why must we still die if Christ died for our sins? Do we have to somehow still satisfy satisfy also? Is God going to now inflict double punishment? The answer is no. Our death, beloved, is not satisfaction for sin. Our death is not punishment for our sins. Our death now has a different purpose. Namely, it is the way that Jesus comes from heaven with his angels to take us to himself, it's the doorway to eternal life and glory. And that's why the Apostle Paul is able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, for then I will be with Christ. That's the glory that we're looking forward to. It's not to be with Uncle Fred or Aunt Jane or some child that has died from us. The family relationships are done here on earth. Our longing for heaven is to be with Christ Jesus. And everything that takes place before our physical death, God uses to shape us and to mold us for our place in his kingdom. And in all of our trials and disappointments and sorrows and sickness, God reveals that he will give us grace that is sufficient. And God uses your and my lives as his children to stand out antithetically in this world. While the world is so dark, as long as there are true saints of God and there's the church of Jesus Christ, there is a glory, there is a light that shines in the midst of the darkness. Death is the abolishing of sin. So that when we die, yes, the body lies in the grave, but the soul goes up to heaven. And when it goes up to heaven, immediately it is perfected. For we are sinners, body and soul. Our souls need to be perfected before they can be in heaven. And then when Jesus comes again, our bodies are going to be raised out of the grave and also be changed wonderfully, perfectly so that body and soul, we will live with Christ in the new heavens and new earth and serve Him and obey Him perfectly. The change in that soul is called the first resurrection in our regeneration, and the change that takes place in our body is called the second resurrection. Raised to be perfect. Perfect servants, perfect children of God. So let me press on then with a the third point. The atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ, its awful way, its possibility, he is the Son of God, and then its fruit. And the fruit of that death of Jesus Christ for us is we could say it in one word liberation. Liberation. Now, that term liberation is misused by many theologians today. They talk about liberation from poverty, liberation from sexual roles, whatever. Taught in question and answer 43, what benefit do we receive by the sacrifice and the death of Christ? And we read there, by virtue thereof. Now, that's not the best translation, really, of the German. Really, it's by the power of Christ's death. We are liberated. We are saved. You see, taught is that the cross of Jesus Christ is a mighty power. It's powerful. Although it took place 2,000 years ago, It redeemed, it justified all the elect before and afterwards. That's the issue in this doctrine of limited atonement or particular atonement or definite atonement. For whom did Christ die? Is the death of Jesus Christ effectual or is it not? If the purpose of Jesus' death was to save every person... Then it was not very effectual, many are going to go to hell in unbelief. But if Jesus Christ gave himself for those whom the Father has given to him, namely the elect, it is effectual. Not one, not one of those whom God has chosen and given to Jesus Christ shall perish. And the cross of Jesus Christ is only dependent upon Christ and what he did, not dependent upon us, upon our acceptance, our faith. No, the power of the cross is the power of God to deliver his people from the guilt of sin once and for all. We call that justification. Our guilt is gone. Second of all, We are liberated from fear. We're delivered from fearing God. Now when I say fearing God, I don't mean now fear as reverence, but rather terror or dread. We are not, as believers, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But we are delivered from fearing God. He is our Father in heaven who loved us and gave his Son for us and we are delivered, second of all, from fear of death and the grave. Christ's death was the death of our death. As the Apostle Paul puts it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter fifteen. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It's gone. It's gone. It's no more punishment. But we are present with Christ Jesus. By the cross, God's people are delivered from fear of hell. All the horrible chains of guilt and also doubt are taken away. When Christ takes me home, will I find acceptance in God's eyes? And the answer is yes. My faith in Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. I don't have to doubt that my sins will stand in the way of my coming to heaven. But they are forgiven. What a comfort, what assurance for us. But Christ's death is not only liberation from the guilt of sin, but beloved, Christ's death is also the liberation of the corruption of sin. That sinful nature that is living within us, it no longer holds completely over us. It no longer binds us so that all we can do is sinful things. We're not slaves of sin. And we shouldn't try to excuse ourselves when we do something wrong. Boys and girls say, well, I'm only human. Don't explain your sins that way. Who are we? We are the redeemed. We are new creatures. Oh, we still struggle. We fight with the sin that remains within us. But we are not bound by that sin. But we have been set free from the shackles of the power of sin. Those corrupt inclinations of the flesh will no longer reign in us, control us. Yes, the devil is powerful. Yes, our flesh, our sinful flesh, is still there. And yes, the world, with all of its sins and pleasures, are around us. Current events shout at the depravity of the world. And our, we, as God's children and our children, are thrown into that world. But now the Catechism answers. The death of Christ on the cross has power to liberate us from the power of sin. There's a denial of that power. There are those who say, I just can't help it. I can't fight sin in myself. I can't accept it. What are you fighting? Boys and girls, are you fighting with the inclination you want to disobey dad, mom? Are you fighting with the sin of alcoholism? Are you fighting with the need for drugs or sex or hatred and bitterness or abuse? Where are you looking for help? Are you going to go to the doctor? Are you going to go to the psychologist? Are you going to go to the new age therapy? Are you going to use other drugs to combat other needs? Is that where you're going to look first? Or will you look to your Savior, who hung there on the cross and died in our place to deliver you and me from sin's bondage? God is a very present help. And the death of Jesus Christ then has power. By his power, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. Read Romans chapter 6. The old inclinations of our flesh may no more reign in us. That is what our confessional and biblical teaching is in our Reformed churches. Made free from sin, free from its ruling power, dead to sin, so that we may walk in newness of life. Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressors that were under the First Testament they that are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Why was the death of Jesus absolutely necessary? Because we were dead in sin and he gave himself to that death to give us life. Life in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the power of the death of Christ on the cross a powerful, effectual death that saves all of his elect. The 4,000 years before Christ was born and these 2,000 years after his death and resurrection, saved by the death and blood of our Lord Jesus, given power to fight sin in our lives and to live holy and new lives for him. Amen.